Welcome once again to our summer series from the University of Notre Dame's International Security Center. I'm Beth Grizzoli, and our topic today is China, particularly U.S. relations with China. Someone who studied this extensively is Sebastian Rosato, Associate Professor of Political Science at Notre Dame, and he joins us today. Welcome. Thank you very much. So one thing I want to start with is the book you're currently working on. It has this terrific title. The Road to Hell, Intentions, Uncertainty, and Great Power Politics. So you have to tell us, uh, what is The Road to Hell, and how did you come to write it? Well, um, I think that the most important question uh, that we're going to face in the next generation is the rise of China. Um, it has been growing, as we know, at double digits for decades. And if it continues to grow, um, its military and its economy at its current rate, for let's say a couple more decades. And by the way, that is not for sure, um, but it, it could happen. And if it does, um, the United States will face a genuine peer competitor for the first time in 30 years, um, 50 years, I mean, since the end of the Cold War. Um, and then the question becomes, how is this relationship going to play out? Um, are they going to be uh, competitors? Are they going to find a way to coexist? And as I looked more and more at the issue and how people think about it, it struck me that the real issue, and this is part of the subtitle um, of the book, um, was about intentions. Um, if you believe that the US and China are going to find a way to coexist, you also believe that they can figure out each other's intentions, that somehow they can persuade each other that they don't have malign intentions, and by intentions I mean plans of action, um, that they'll treat each other well, that they don't mean to harm each other, and therefore you believe that this relationship will um, end up okay. Um, if you believe that they can't figure out each other's intentions, then you're very pessimistic about the future of US-China relations. Um, because if you don't know um, that whether the other state has malign or benign intentions, but you do know that it's incredibly powerful, again, China will be a peer competitor of the United States, um, you have to prepare for the worst uh, just in case they're malign. Again, you're not assuming that they are malign, you just don't know. Um, so intentions is crucial to that debate. Um, now, I'm also an international relations theorist, um, and I uh, have thought a lot about uh, just uh, the fundamental drivers of conflict and cooperation in international politics. And in that debate, intentions is also a key issue. Um, most international relations theorists agree about most of their, assum their assumptions about how the world works. Uh, we have this assumption called anarchy, which is the belief that the world doesn't have, not the belief, the assumption uh, that the world doesn't have a world government, um, and therefore states have to look after themselves. Um, so a lot of stuff is agreed. I mean, th that um, particular assumption is agreed by everybody. Um, but theorists have extremely uh, divergent views on whether international politics is fundamentally competitive or whether cooperation is possible. And the reason they have fundamentally different views is where they stand on intentions. Uh, intentions is, is central to that debate. Um, and the more I looked at it, I realized there is no major work on intentions. This is arguably the most important assumption. It's the assumption that distinguishes optimists from pessimists. And there's no major work on the subject. There's some work on um, the process that states go through to figure out intentions. Um, but there's no major statement of what intentions are. 
Um, what are the arguments about how you can figure out intentions? What are the arguments about how you cannot figure out intentions? Um, what is the evidence for whether states have figured out intentions? And it just struck me that there's a huge uh, gap in the literature. Um, and sometimes gaps in the literature are there for a reason, but this is fundamental and it's not discussed. So for both real world and theoretical reasons, I thought if I could figure out intentions, and specifically if I could answer the question, can great powers reach confident conclusions about each other's intentions, um, that I would make a contribution, again, both to the real world um, and to theoretical debates. So in, in examining this, this area, you felt was not um, that uh, explored yet. What do, you, what do you contend? I mean, can you tell us about countries that in the past um, have been able to coexist and even collaborate harmoniously because they have a good grasp of each other's intentions? Or where do you stand on the whole side? Um, well, the first thing I decided to do was to figure out just logically, theoretically, what I thought about intentions. I wanted to leave aside um, the historical evidence, and we can come back to that um, later. But I just wanted to figure out, again, what are intentions, how do they work? Um, and my conclusion from that was that great powers cannot reach confident conclusions about each other's intentions, and therefore conflict is inevitable. Therefore, the US-China relationship um, can only be competitive in the future, um, et cetera, et cetera. But let me say a little bit more about um, why I think they can't reach confident conclusions. And in fact, let me go back a step further and say why confidence is so important. There's actually a big debate about how confident do you need to be in order to cooperate. Um, there, there are some people who say that you can't cooperate unless you're 100% certain that the other side is benign. That seems to me um, kind of a crazy claim. Uh, we can't be 100% certain about anything. Um, and as a friend of mine once told me, he said, if great powers had to be 100% certain about things, they would never get out of bed in the morning. So that seemed a little bit too extreme. Um, at the other end of the spectrum are people who say, you don't actually need to be that confident at all to cooperate. Um, I wrote an article about intentions um, for a journal called International Security, and um, some critics responded to my claim and in one of the criticisms, or one of the critiques, uh, they argue that states could even cooperate if they were 50% certain that another state was um, benign. That seems too low to me. Um, this is international politics, and if you assume that someone is benign and they turn out to be malign, they could kill you. Um, and so I don't think that 50 works. So I had to think about where do I, you know, where do I put confidence? So isn't there a, a, a happy medium, though, where you could say we can, we can cooperate, we can coexist, but we're both watching our backs? You could, but again, um, the question is how much are you watching your back? And if you don't watch your back, um, you die. Again, international politics is a ruthless business. Uh, we know about the world wars. We know about the Napoleonic Wars. Um, you make the mistake, as, by the way, happened in the 1930s. Um, nobody realized Hitler's hegemonic ambitions. Um, many thought that he was just a regular German statesman who wanted to re reunite Germans within a single territory. Um, and they didn't prepare adequately for what turned out to be a cat catastrophe. Um, so my argument is you need to be confident. 
which is to say near certain, um, high 90s, if I had to put a number on it. I would never put a number on it. Um, now, is that realistic? Um, it's very, very rare to find policymakers telling you how certain they need to be. Um, I think it's just something that they internalize and therefore you don't see it. But you can see it now and then. Uh, my favorite example is um, a British politician called Dennis Healy, who talked about uh, the United States deterring the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And Healy said, what's amazing is that the Russians have to be 5% sure that the U.S. will use nuclear weapons to be deterred. And the Europeans need to be 95% sure that we will protect them in order for them to feel safe. So there you've got someone saying, we're talking high 90s here. Um, I also at one point um, went on a little bit of a down a little path uh, where I investigated uh, insurance against catastrophic events. There's a whole literature on insurance against catastrophic events. And they have all sorts of formulas for how you figure out the kind of risks um, people are prepared to take um, and how much it's going to cost, etc. Um, and uh, again, they make heroic assumptions about the value of a human life, etc., etc. But I, I took all their assumptions and I applied them to great power politics. And I asked myself, um, how much of a possibility or probability, what probability are states prepared to live with um, reflected in their military spending? What probability are they prepared to live with uh, that they will be attacked? And it turns out that they need to be 98% certain that they won't be attacked over the next 25 years. Um, so there you've got another number. Um, and I could go on and on. Um, Dwight Eisenhower, I think, um, was a 95% guy. Dick Cheney was a 99% guy. Um, so we're talking, you have to be quite confident. Again, because the costs are absolutely catastrophic. 50%, um, again, seems ludicrous to me. And you say looking over your shoulder. I think you're looking over your shoulder constantly in great power politics. This is an interesting comparison, though. I had never thought of this because, you know, you, the actuarial science and the insurance industry is, is the risk-averse um, nature of human beings. I would, and I could be completely wrong, but I would venture to guess most people are risk-averse, but it comes down to dollars and cents. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, there's a price to pay on that. And I guess when we're looking at the leaders of these great powers, it's not really their personal, their personal finances that are on the line. So maybe the financing doesn't have as much to do with this as it would in a, in a comparison, you know, in, in the general population. Well, I would say to you, their lives are on the line and the lives of their citizens are on the line. Um, and that's almost, well, not almost, that's more important than money. Um, again, the, the stakes in international politics are, are enormous. Um, and I did, I, I said a few minutes ago, I said you have to have some heroic assumptions about the value of a human life, et cetera. You have to be able to measure this to do a calculation. Um, but I would argue that when you're talking about survival, um, calculations sort of pale into insignificance. I mean, you can't put a number um, on survival. Um, but I will say, again, that I don't think that number can be 100%, which is the position some people take because then you'd never decide anything right. at all. Right, okay, but so a scientist would say, we can make deductions, we can make inferences based on evidence, um, tangible evidence. So given the 
global society that we live in today with technology, with uh, open sources, with the internet, with blogs, with um, actually leaks. Uh, isn't there a lot of information out there we can glean and you know other countries can glean where you could make reliable inferences about what's going on in another country? Sure. Um, you mentioned gleaning information and inferences. I think they're two different things, so let me talk about them separately. Um, let's talk first about just gleaning information directly. Um, intentions are held in the heads of a handful of decision makers, um, and uh, they will say all sorts of things in public, but you don't know what is in their heads, and it's impossible to figure that out. So direct information of intentions is quite difficult. Um, I'll just say one more thing. Um, a lot of people, when I say that, say, well, what about spies? Uh, there's no example in history of a spy who has made it into the top two or three, or none that I know of, of course we wouldn't know, but there's th made it into the top two or three decision makers in a state, i.e. where intentions reside. Um, I just read a novel over the summer, The Manchurian Candidate. I've only ever watched the movie. Um, the Manchurian Candidate, of course, is an agent of a foreign government who is installed uh, in the United States. And the idea is that he'll reach the upper echelons of the administration. Um, but that's fiction. Um, it doesn't happen in the real world. So I think direct um, evidence um, is, is very difficult to come by. Um, then there's inference. Uh, you can look at what states do, for example. One of the arguments out there is that um, you can examine a state's behavior and that'll tell you something about its intentions. If it behaves very badly, this is an aggressive state and it, if it behaves in a benign fashion, uh, it's a benign state. Um, and that's a question of inference. That's not a direct um, read on their intentions, but you can infer them. Um, and I would just say that um, information of that kind is always ambiguous. Um, imagine a state that uh, behaves uh, in a benign fashion um, over a long period of time. Um, a reasonable observer watching that state could conclude that that state is genuinely peaceful um, if that state is behaving in a conciliatory fashion, but it could also conclude that that state is trying to fool it um, and is therefore aggressive. Um, and by the way, it works the other way around as well. Um, in 1907, Air Crow, he was a um, major figure in the, US, in, the, sorry, in the British Foreign Office, and he wrote a memorandum about Germany. Of course, Germany was a big concern uh, at the time. And he laid out um, 25 years of German misbehavior in that memorandum. And he said, well, what are we to conclude from this? And he said, well, this could be part of a large plan by Germany uh, to take over the world. Or it could just be a series of events that are unconnected to each other and that are not part of a larger plan. And he said, and I think this is quite reasonable, I can't tell. Um, I mean, how could you tell? Um, imagine a state um, that behaves in a very conciliatory, conciliatory fashion. Um, France, sorry, not France, Germany during the 1920s. Uh, the French watched the Germans, and the Germans made all sorts of concessions after World War I. Um, and there was even this um, moment that was known as the spirit of Locarno. They'd signed some treaties at Locarno. 
that uh, prohibited the use of force. Um, and it, to all intents and purposes, it looked as if the French were highly, con sorry, the Germans were highly conciliatory. Um, and Poincaré, who's the president of France, goes to the head of the French foreign ministry, not the foreign minister, but the permanent head of the ministry, uh, a guy called Philippe Bertollet. And he says, Philippe, what do you think about the Germans? Are they sincere? And Bertollet says, Mr. President, I believe they're sincere and insincere, just like all great powers. The point being, again, that this is a reasonable deduction to make from that behavior. Behavior is very ambiguous. Now, there's some behavior that is unambiguous. Um, imagine a state disarmed completely. Then you could probably conclude that that state was benign. But no state will behave like that because oh, it oh. would never put itself at risk. Okay, well, let's, but let's talk about that. Let's talk about um, Russia and the United States and Reagan and Gorbachev. Now, you contend that great powers, I love this term too, condemned to compete. Talk about a good book title. Um, condemned to compete, but yet Reagan and Gorbachev managed to bring about uh, a peaceful end of the Cold War. We had the INF Treaty, and though the U.S. was building its military power, um, the Soviets did not respond in a competitive way because um, most people assume it would have been too much of an economic burden to them to do that. So, you know, how do you answer that? Well, I would argue that the U.S.-Soviet competition ended because the Soviet Union lost and ceased to be a great power. And if it's not a great power, you're not in the world of great power politics anymore. Um, but the interesting question is the underlying assumption there that somehow the Americans and the Soviets figured out that the other side had good intentions. Um, and I'll just recapitulate the story that most people tell, and then I'll tell you what I think about it. So the traditional story is that Gorbachev comes into power in 1985 and um, he trusts the Americans. He believes the West is not evil um, and he starts making a series of concessions. There's a moratorium on nuclear testing. Uh, there's the INF Treaty where the Soviets give up many more weapons than the Americans do. Uh, there's uh, Gorbachev's apparently sincere uh, uh, proposal to give up all nuclear weapons, abolish all nuclear weapons by the year 2000. And then in December 1988, he goes to the United Nations and he announces that he's going to reduce conventional forces uh, in Eastern Europe um, by a large number. Um, and then as uh, the Eastern European Empire starts to collapse in 1989, um, he lets it go peacefully. And all of this behavior led the Americans to understand that Gorbachev was also benign and therefore they wrapped up the Cold War um, in a nice peaceful fashion. Now, my understanding is not that. Um, when uh, you look at Gorbachev, you mentioned the economic problems. Gorbachev comes in in 1985 and he understands that the Soviet Union is an economic basket case um, and that the only way to rescue the Soviet Union is to stop the Cold War. Um, because um, the burden of the arms race is killing his economy. Um, and so it's not because he believes that the West is benign that he goes into this series of concessions, but it's because it's the only way he can save his country. Um, and if you look at the evidence, 
Uh, at no point does he say to anybody, anywhere, I believe the West is benign. Um, he sometimes says they're not as aggressive as we thought they were, um, but he never says, I'm confident that the US is benign. But he has no choice, he has to give up. Then you look at the Americans, the American side, and they're looking at all these Soviet concessions. At no point do the Americans come to believe that the Soviet Union is a benign state. Um, probably the, the height of, uh, let's say, um, belief in uh, Soviet uh, benign intentions is the middle of 1988. Um, Reagan goes to Moscow and he's asked uh, in an off-the-cuff moment, uh, do, you do you still see the Soviet Union as an evil empire? He'd made the evil empire speech uh, in the early 80s. And he says, oh, that comment was made in another time, another era. And they say, is the Cold War over? And he says, yes, I think you can say it is. Um, that seems to be the United States finally accepting that the Soviet Union uh, is benign. Um, if you look at Reagan's briefing book for that whole visit, uh, he's told that this is a PR exercise. He has to get out there, he has to meet the Russian people, he has to say nice things. Um, but at the end of the briefing book, uh, the United States, uh, the, the uh, officials who are briefing him say, let us not forget our relationship with the Soviet Union is a fundamentally adversarial one. So there's a difference between rhetoric and what they believe. And I'll just say one more thing. As the Soviet Union collapses, the United States makes very, very sure that the Soviet Union will never come back in its original form, which again tells me that they don't, uh, they don't trust in the Soviet Union's benign intentions or that those intentions will continue to be benign uh, in the future. The reunification of Germany is a perfect case. Uh, the Soviets did not want Germany reunified and they did not want Germany in NATO. And the United States ensured that Germany was reunified in NATO. Okay, but this, so your theory is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're really, the underlying premise is that every international relations decision our country makes is based on the threat assessment we make of the other country. Pretty much that's the ultimate uh, guiding factor. I mean, would you agree with that? Yes, um, but I, just, I would just um, clarify one thing. I'm only talking about great powers. Um, I don't think that the United States thinks um, in those terms about Canada. I don't think it conducts a threat assessment about Canada because it knows that Canada does not have the capability to hurt the United States in a meaningful way. Um, which again is why I'm interested in China um, and I'm not interested in any other state because I don't see another state on the horizon right now that would have that ability. So, but yes, when you're dealing with peer competitors, i.e. states that have the same capabilities as you do, that's all you worry about. Okay, so let's talk about that. What does all this mean for U.S.-China relations? Um, sounds as if you have a rather doomsday prophecy here. Are, are we in another arms race? Not yet. Um, as I said right at the beginning, um, China may become a genuine peer competitor to the United States. I don't think it is right now, uh, which is why I don't think the United States is particularly concerned about China. Um, but were China to become a great power, um, then yes, not only will there be arms racing, um, both sides will look for allies in the region. The United States will try and build um, an alliance block 
to check China. China will do the same, try and find allies um, to push the United States out of the region. Um, and you may even have a war. I I'm not predicting a war, but um, that is the ultimate form of competition. But I see competition running right through that relationship. Um, and just to slightly contradict myself, I do think there are some signs of that already. Um, the Obama administration's pivot to Asia is a clear example. Um, and actually, that tells me that concern about intentions is even higher than you might think, because even though China is not yet a great power, the United States is already thinking about how it's going to deal with, with China in the future. What needs to happen for China to become a defined great power? Um, it would need uh, a more sophisticated economy. Um, it, it has a large economy right now, but that economy is not um, at the same sophistication as the U.S. economy. But if China were to have a GDP per capita somewhere around where the United States is, um, then you'd know that it was um, a technologically sophisticated economy. And when it does that, it can build technologically sophisticated forces, um, and then you have a peer competitor of the United States. But right now, I, I, I actually don't know what um, Chinese GDP per capita is, but I, I believe it's a quarter of the United States, uh, maybe less. Um, and so it's large, but it doesn't have the ability to compete in high-tech military, in the high-tech military realm. Sure. Well, you readily admit, um, in fact, you dare to say most people disagree with you on this. Um, doesn't that give you pause and make you reconsider this argument? Well, I've made an argument that I believe is logically consistent, uh, which is that, again, you can't see intentions. The information you have about intentions is ambiguous. Um, and something I haven't mentioned um, yet, intentions can change. And therefore, there's all sorts of uncertainty about intentions. I believe that's a logically coherent argument. Um, I've looked at the evidence. Um, you mentioned the Cold War case, the end of the Cold War. That's actually the best case for the claim that states can figure out each other's intentions. And even in that case, I just don't find a lot of evidence. So logic and evidence, I believe, is on my side. So I don't reconsider um, my conclusions. What I do wonder is why people uh, disagree with my conclusions so much. Um, and despite what I think um, is a logically consistent and historically grounded argument. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the American Academy. Um, I believe it's full of liberal optimists who believe that, we, that nothing is beyond human reason, that we can somehow figure out a way to end this, um, that somehow um, the US is different and that we'll be able to um, discuss our differences with China. Uh, you, you go look at Henry Kissinger's book on China. Um, Kissinger's concerned about the China threat, but he firmly believes that somehow um, if you talk to them enough, if you're open enough, if you discuss your intentions enough, that um, the two sides can find a way to coexist. Um, but I think that's a deeply American optimistic view of the way the world works. Um, I just don't think it is the way the world works. And I think it's incumbent upon us 
to treat the world as it is, not how we would like it to be. So you bring up the academy, and um, it makes me wonder. You're a professor, and, and you um, have the eyes and ears of, of young people in class every day. Exactly what messages can you give your students if much of the work in international relations seems fruitless at times? Um, you know, I keep picturing a dog chasing his tail in endless circles. Um, I don't think it's fruitless. Um, I, I think the world is fundamentally competitive, and I don't think there's any way out of that. Um, but I do think you can avoid some of the worst excesses. Um, so let me explain that a little bit more. I think that my advice to the United States, and this is what I tell uh, my students, is that what you should do is get ready for the rise of China and build up uh, your capabilities to the max. Um, the United States should invest in R&D, uh, infrastructure, um, pull out of um, all these minor conflicts around the world, husband its resources, um, and focus on what is the only real threat, which is China down the road. And that when China does rise, it'll be confronted by a formidable United States of America, and it will therefore be deterred from trying anything against the United States. The same way, by the way, that the US will be deterred from going after China if China is also formidably powerful. Now, that's mutual deterrence. Uh, it's stability. It is not peace. So I, I don't have a, um, a happy bottom line here. Um, the best you can hope for in international politics is stability. Um, but stability is better than instability. Um, and if uh, these sides mutually deter each other, you can avoid war, just like we did during the Cold War. The Cold War was not a time of peace. It was not a good time to live through. Um, but there was no great power war. Um, and so I think we did as well as we could. And I would advise the United States to think the same way going forward. And that's what I tell my students. Well, you've certainly given us a lot to think about today. Um, we're going to wrap this up here. Uh, thanks to everyone who tuned in today and listened. We've been talking with Professor Sebastian Rosato of the University of Notre Dame's Political Science Department and International Security Center. His current book is The Road to Hell, Intentions, Uncertainty, and Great Power Politics. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.